Well, good morning. I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2 is where we are this morning. If this is your first Sunday here, we are studying the book of Titus. And we are in chapter 2. We are taking a little break from our study of Acts. In a couple weeks when we're done with Titus, we'll be back studying Acts. But uh, I wanted to take a little diversion into Titus to just focus on kind of what is an established church and just working on, on, on ensuring that, that we understand kind of the fundamental building blocks of an established church, especially as we kind of are beginning a new ministry year and, and all of that. And, and so this is a wonderful, uh, wonderful book of the Bible. And we're looking this morning at chapter 2. We're going to be looking at all 15 verses. Uh, We're going to spend most of our time in the first 10 verses. uh, And then we're going to just kind of touch on verses 11 through 15. And then next week, I'll unpack those verses in greater detail uh, as we kind of finish up the chapter. But uh, before we begin, I'd like to just open in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. God, thank you now for our time the privilege we have of studying your word, the privilege we have of really engaging uh, the role that we play in this world. And uh, God, I'm grateful that you get to use us, save us, redeem us, use us. I'm grateful that we get to be together to engage these truths. Lord, now with all that goes on in our week, may our focus be on your word with all the different experiences we bring in at this given moment, I pray, God, that we can uh, just hear you this morning as we uh, are engaging your truth. And may it wash over us and strengthen us and build us more into the image of Christ. I pray this in his great name. Amen. A couple weeks ago, I got a book in the mail uh, from a missions agency, and the book is about the role of the Bible in the world. And uh, what it is, is it's a book, a series of essays by different national leaders from, from a variety of countries on every continent in the world. And these religious leaders are writing about how uh, people view the Bible in their culture. And so you've got Europe and Asia and South America, you've got, you know, like I said, every continent being represented. And, uh, and again, these are national leaders. And, and basic, the basic premise of every chapter of this book is that the Bible has a very low view in the world. You know, in fact, it's, it's in, you know, the, the, most of the countries of the world, they don't value it as having anything significant to say or speak any truth to life. And many of the churches, even across the world, they don't preach it. They don't proclaim it. It's not a bedrock. It's really not a part of the Christian experience. And uh, it's a very kind of, in many ways, depressing book to read because of the fact that it's just describing how, you know, how low people's view of the Bible is. But as I was reading that book, I was thinking, you know, the problems aren't just in other continents. There are problems in our world today, too. People have a low view of the Scriptures. Um, It's usually not the first place that sometimes even Christians in our culture run to for help. Um, You know, many times we don't look for it as as a way of finding encouragement. Um, we're inundated by a lot of resources, and therefore it's easy for the Bible to get set aside. But not only even the struggles that goes on among churches in, in our culture, but also our world doesn't really appreciate the Bible either, right? I mean, if you think about it, uh, you, know, you know, how many people are threatened if the Ten Commandments are hanging in a courtroom? Or how many people are threatened if there's Ten Commandments hanging in a school? 
somewhere as, as if don't murder, don't commit adultery. It's like this really threatening message you want to send to people. But yet people are threatened by it. And there's something about the truth of the Bible that makes people afraid and scared. And so the question is, how do we respond to that as the church? How do we respond to this? Is the key to this whole thing, is the whole key to this that we should study and and learn a bunch of apologetics on how to defend the Bible in the world and and be able to defend that the Bible is written by God and it's 66 books, but it's one book with one message and one theme and it's all about Jesus and I'm going to give you lectures and seminars on how to defend it? Is that the real key to it? Now, I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing. But, but what I would say is I'm, I don't think that's the central key that the Bible itself offers as the way and means for the truth to be defended in a pagan culture. Titus chapter 2 gives us the answer. In fact, Titus 2, if, you, if most of you, many of you are familiar with Titus chapter 2, you know that it's talking about older men and older women and younger women and younger men and bondservants and pastors. And, and, you, and you know this, and sometimes it's easy to look at that and say, this is just a whole past, a passage on behavior. This is what, how men are to behave. This is how women are to behave. You know, this is how servants are to behave. This is how pastors are to behave. And that's what its book, the passage is about. But actually, that's not ultimately what this chapter is about. What this chapter is about is how the church is to defend the Word of God in a godless culture. See the point, and you'll see it. It shows up three times in this chapter. He's saying, Titus, I want you to disciple the people in your church so they would be this way, so the Word of God would not be maligned in their culture. I want you to do this So that when the accusers come, they'll be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about God's Word. You see, the solution to the problem of why people don't want to have the Ten Commandments in a classroom or why they don't want to have Ten Commandments over the courtroom is not going to be found in my skill to give you an apologetic on a defense of the Scriptures. It's actually going to be found in your home. Your home is the whole key. It's the way God designed His Word to be verified, validated, and defended in a pagan culture. That's what you're going to see here in chapter 2. It's very important to catch this because when we talk about these traits here, we're not just listing off a bunch of things that you're supposed to do or you won't go to heaven. Right? It isn't like, okay, old men, here's what you're supposed to do, and God's going to be really mad at you if you're not this way. And okay, old women, this is what you're supposed to be, and if you're not this way, then, you know, it's not that. Paul is telling Titus, listen, the truth of the Word of God is so powerful that it has the ability to transform somebody from being a selfish person to a selfless person, from being an angry person to a kind person, from being somebody who won't forgive to somebody who will forgive. That's how powerful the Word is. It's so powerful that it can take people from the natural trajectory of selfishness and pride in their own way 
and turn them to live for others in God's glory and God's kingdom. And the best way to defend that is when the pagan culture sees it operating in a home. And when that home is established that way, it puts to shame and puts to silence all the accusers. So, you are the solution. We are the solution. Our homes are the solution to this problem. That's how God designed it. And that's what we're going to see here. And I like to say it this way. My little phrase is this, character impacts. Character impacts. Godly character makes a deeper impact in the society and in the culture than any logical or rational or, or academic defense of the Scriptures. I could stand up here and, and academically prove to you that the Bible is the Word of God and that all 66 books have one message. And I could lecture you and lecture and lecture, but at the end of the day, God said, oh, that's not how I'm designing this. What I want is transformation. And when they look at a transformed home and when they see a mom with a two-year-old not being like all the other moms with their two-year-olds and the moms are saying, I can't be around my kids anymore, man. They're driving me nuts. And this mom's saying, man, I love my kids. I can't wait to be around them. What got into you, Jesus? That's what got into me. And let me tell you where I learned about it. From the Bible. Come on over. Let me show it to you. You see, that's the transformation. That's what's supposed to happen. That's how we impact community. So this is what we're going to see today. We're going to see character, how character impacts. We're going to look primarily at the character in the home. We'll touch slightly on the impact in the world. And next week we'll dive into 11 through 15 in greater detail. We'll just touch on those a little bit today. But I want you to understand this. We live in a world that is threatened by the Bible, highly threatened by the Bible. If you were to stand up and say, if you were a politician running for president and you were to say, every decision I make, I run through the scriptures, you would not be elected. You'd be considered narrow-minded and, you know, fundamentalist. And they, who knows what they'd say, right? You, you know, they'd just attack you. If you were president of the United States and you put the Ten Commandments behind you, on every speech, people would just shoot at you. They would go after you. We live in a world that's threatened by God's Word. And the solution to that is an established home. So we'll look at this today. And I want you to see this. And hopefully not be discouraged because when you introduce it this way and you say, hey, the solution's your home, you go, oh my, no, not my home. How about their home? You know, can we trade off? They do it for five years and then I'll take it in the next five years, right? You know, right? Everyone say, that's not my home. Okay, so I don't want this to uh, overwhelm you because one of the great things we're going to learn about today is this great word that Chris focused on uh, in, in, the, in the devotion this morning and that has been a part of our, our songs today is grace. That the grace of God is there. And God knows that your home is not ready but he's made a way for it to be ready. And so, please don't be discouraged. Be encouraged as we head into this, okay? Be encouraged. So let's look for the character in the home. Let's begin here looking at verse 1 with me. Notice what he says. Paul, the author, is writing to Titus, this young pastor who's been left here to establish this church, and he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
Now, at face value, you go, I don't really know totally what that means. What does it mean to teach what accords with sound doctrine? Well, let me try to explain this to you, and I want to begin by explaining it to you by looking at the very first word in that text, that little conjunction, but, right? It's drawn a contrast. And the contrast connects all the way back to chapter 1. We looked at this last week, but let me just summarize it for you. In chapter 1, he says that you've got to put these godly elders in place because, you see, there's all these false shepherds out there that want to go after the church and attack the church. But one of the signs of a false teaching is that it destroys the home. The message of false teaching destroys a home. If a home is completely falling apart, chances are it's believing some wrong things about God, believing wrong things about the Bible, believing wrong things about Jesus. False teaching has, a, has the impact of destroying the home. And so he says, now this is what goes on. And when these teachers are out there, they're going to hurt entire families teaching the stuff they're teaching. And then he says, but you, Titus, here's the contrast. What I want you to do is I want you to teach the things that accord with sound doctrine. I want you to teach the things that accord with the truth with the truth of the gospel, with the truth of what God said, with the truth of who God is. I want you to teach in a way that, in essence, here's how we could say it, that is actually building up the homes, as we're going to see here. Because he's going to outline what those things are. False teaching tears apart a home. True teaching builds up a home. False teaching makes families crash. Truth brings families together. So Titus, your role is to teach things that will actually build up the home. And as we're going to see, you're building up the home because God's designed this home to be the impact to silence those people who want to say, don't trust the Bible. The Bible's not trustworthy. And so his role is to do this. Now what he's going to do is... Paul is going to outline a bunch of categories. Old men, young men, old women, young women. Titus himself is a pastor and bondservants. He's got all these categories. Now here's the problem with categories in the Bible. Whenever there are categories given, some of you say, I don't really fit one of these categories. You know, maybe you're a young woman, but you're not married. And so there's a whole thing in there about loving your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. What am I supposed to do? I don't fit this category. Well, you got to know, let me kind of explain this to you. Whenever you read categories, you have to realize that the categories are just this. They're, they're general statements. Okay? Just kind of blocking off the home and saying, in a home you got old people, you got young people. Some of the old people are men. Some of the old people are women. Some of the young people are men. Some of the young people are women. On the most part, they're, they're going to be married. And there's going to be children. That's basic setup. Now, yes, some people don't fit Exactly. They're in between. And in this culture, you're going to see it a little bit more, the, 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 the disconnect, because in this culture, when this was written, there were arranged marriages. Okay? So, so how many girls in here are between 14 and 16? Raise your hand. Okay. So it's, you could be bold about it. Yeah. Okay. Raise your hand. Okay. Now, think about this. You guys, if you were living in this day in Crete at this time, your dad would have found you a husband, and you probably would have been married by now. Okay? And your dad would have found the husband for you. Okay? I don't hear any amens. <laughs> there was not one girl who said amen to that. <laughs> not even my own. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. No, I'm joking. 
So it is true that whenever they talk about young women, oftentimes it's in relation to them being married. So you're going to see these kind of things in there. So what do we do with this? So, so what, how do we handle this when they talk about loving your husband if you're a young woman and you're not married? Well, here's the key, right? It's pretty simple. The key is this. Look at the heart of the passage because it's dealing with character. Look at the heart of the passage. If you fit within that category but not exactly, it's okay. Look at the character that he's driving at because it's the character that's going to be the witness to the world. Even if you don't have an opportunity to express that character exactly the way the category is being laid out, that's all right. It's all right. You can still express that category or that character, but it might just look a little bit different. Okay, so that's the key. I just want you to know that as we go through it, because I don't want people to to uh, to, to say, "Well, this doesn't apply to me because I don't exactly fit this category." Okay, so let's look at the first one. The first category is older men, right? Verse two: Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Okay, so now here's the big question. How do we determine older men, and for that matter, older women, versus younger men and younger women? Okay, in our culture, this is like a really sensitive issue, right? right? It's very sensitive, right? Because the one question I'm never going to ask is, how many of you are older women, right? You're not going to raise your hand, right? <laughs> Who's going to volunteer for that? Okay. It's a very sensitive issue. So, I want to give you what I would consider to be, I think, consistent with Scripture as to how you would determine whether you're older or younger in terms of this passage, okay? The way the Bible determines and delineates older and younger is by age of children. If you are of the age where you're having children and your children are in the home, they would put you in the category of the younger woman. If you are of the age where you're post-having children and your children are gone, and maybe they could be off getting married or doing other things, you're in the category of being an older woman. Same thing for the men. If you're in a category of having children at home, you would be considered a younger man. If you're of the age where your children are out of the house, then you're considered an older man. Now, it doesn't mean that you have children or not. It's, it's not that you have children in the home. It's just if you're of the age where, yes, typically guys my age have children out of the house, then I fall under the older category. Okay, got it? So, I'll let you apply this now, however you want, okay, where you feel in this category. Um, but I'm watching those who are taking notes, so I know. No, I'm teasing. <clears throat> so, older men. Here's the list. He's saying, now, now listen, when we're looking at the home, how do we then share the gospel? How do we defend the validity of the scriptures? Well, it'll begin with when the older men in the home have a certain character. Notice this character. Let me just give you the list, give you simple definitions of each one of these things. It says, now the older men then are, are to be sober-minded. What this means is clear-headed, not under the influence of anything, but thinking clearly. It means that they, they have the ability to dispense wisdom because they're not caught up with other things themselves, their own projects. They haven't disengaged from the world. Ah, oh, my time's done. I'm over. It doesn't matter. I don't care anymore. It's not that kind of thing. They, they think clearly. The next one, dignified. They live in a manner where they're worthy of respect. You look at their life. 
You look at the way they take care of their things in their home. You look at the way that they live. And you say, I respect this person. They've garnered respect. They have self-control. Self-control shows up in every single one of these things. Self-control, basic definition is you're driven by wisdom, not by impulse. We'll talk about that one later in more detail when we get to the young men, right? Because that's their deal. So, but driven by wisdom, not by impulse. And then there's a bunch of sound. Sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Sound in faith, they have a doctrinally healthy walk with God, right? They have, they're not just playing in the shallow end. Sound always means like kind of accurate. When you see sound in the book of Titus, it means accurate. It means truthful. It, it, it means that, that, that you, you're really engaging this thing accurately. So sound in faith means that this is a, a guy who, who understands the truth, walking with a pure faith in God, not a distracted faith. He knows who God is. He's confident in who God is. And he's not shaken by the craziness of the world. He's not shaken by it. He's sound in faith. Sound in love. His life on the planet has not made him jaded about people. Right? Life on the planet has not made him so cynical that he rolls his eyes at everything and says, oh, like that's going to work. People, you know what there is about people? People are just losers. That's what I've learned in life. Can't trust anybody. Right? That's the natural trajectory of, of human life, is to lose love for people, is to get to the point where you start pulling away because people do things wrong and they never change. And blah, blah. No, they have an accurate love. They, they, are, they so understand the gospel that they have a true love towards others. And sound and steadfastness means that they persevere in the hard times. They don't jump ship when things get hard. They don't run away when things get bad. You know, problems are going on, and, and, and the temptation is they forget it. Everybody's, they're all messed up. I'm going to go into my home and take my Bible, and I'm just going to be me and my family and forget about the world, right? That's not persevering. Persevering says, no, I believe God. I believe that the gospel can overcome. I'll be sound in this, like hanging in there. Okay, now I want you to notice something. Titus is supposed to be teaching the Word of God in such a way <clears throat> that he encourages the older men to be this way. So that's what you have to catch. Titus's role is to make sure that, that as he's unfolding the truth and all the opportunities he has to be a teacher in the church, that he's using his gift to keep his eye and, and pushing the older men to have these character traits. Why? Because the natural trajectory of life is not those character traits. That is not the natural trajectory of life. The natural trajectory of life, for, you know, as you get older, is to stop caring, is to get disengaged, is to give up, to not fight, to say, what's the point? It doesn't really matter. All that's going to happen in the end is that you're going to die. So just rank up the debt, do what you want, it doesn't matter. Right? That's the natural human trajectory. The gospel stops that trajectory and says, no. But Titus, you're to teach the older men to be this way. Okay, now we'll flip to the older women. Okay? The older women. <clears throat> Verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Okay, so same thing. He's got to now engage the older women. Let me just give you check off, uh, check off the list here of, of their traits here. It says they're to be reverent in their behavior. That's the idea of acting with dignity. 
that, that, that they act with dignity. They don't act in, a, in an irreverent manner like, it doesn't matter, I can do it my own way. No, everything they do, they carry themselves with dignity. They're not slanderers. They don't use their tongue to sit around and, and, and gossip and tear people down. Do you know what they said? Do you know what they did? Do you know what happened there? Do you know what happened there? So-and-so said this. Did you know so-and-so said this? And getting on the phone and, and spreading the family gossip around everywhere. They're not to do that. That's not what their time is to be spent doing. They're not to be a slave to drink. I find that interesting that that's in the women one. I don't know why, you know, why it's there. I just never thought of an older woman being an alcoholic, but I guess it happens, you know. Maybe in our culture it could be prescription drugs, you know, but I don't think you guys sit around and sipping elderberry wine or something like that. But I don't know. But it's there. Say, listen, do not turn yourself over. This is the same equivalent of the men being sober-minded. Don't turn yourself over to something else. Don't do that. And then notice this last one. Teach what is good. This is an interesting thing. It's easy, I think, the natural trajectory in all of life is to disengage. And so for the older men, they can disengage. And, and he's saying, don't disengage. The older women, he's saying, listen, don't disengage. Don't get to the point where you, you raised your kids, you raised your family, they're out of the house now, and now it's just me time. And I'm going to be grandma one day, and it's just going to be me, and I just want to be grandma, and that's what I want to be, and I'm just pulling away. Saying, actually, you're to use your time to be a teacher. And who are you supposed to teach, but we'll see, the younger women. Now, this kind of makes sense in the church, if you think about it, because it shouldn't be Titus's job to teach the younger women. That would be bad. Right? You don't want to send a pastor in. It's okay, we're going to have a young women's Bible study. I'm leading it. Okay, girls? Come on. Just between us girls, what's going on? Let's talk. Not appropriate. Not appropriate at all. Not only that... To help shape the younger women, it's great to have an older woman in their life. And so what's needed is for the older women to feel that sense of urge to say, hey, I need this. And so what Titus's job is to do, and this is what I'm doing here, is to nudge the older women to say, listen, don't disengage. Don't disengage. This is not the station in life to pull back and say, okay, I've done it. I'm done now. It's their turn. Actually, it's your time to step up because you got a wealth of wisdom. And what we need is for you to use that wisdom to shape the next generation. And so now that moves to the younger women. And so the key here now is you got Titus teaching the older men, Titus teaching the older women, and now the older women are stepping in and they're teaching the younger women. Now notice what it says here in verse 4. So now we move to the younger women. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now again, many of you young women say, I'm not married, so half this doesn't apply to me. But let's look at the character traits that are here. The character traits do apply, even if the specific outlets don't directly apply to you right now. So older women, you're investing into the younger women, and notice what it says. First one, to love their husband and children. Now, the basic word there for love is not the word agape, which is like sacrificial love. It's not that. Ironically, he's not saying teaching you to sacrifice for your, for your children or your husband, because I think just women do that if you're good at that. The word there is the word phileo. Phileo is affection. Affection. 
the natural trajectory of life is to lose affection for people. That's a natural trajectory in all of life. New relationships, man, I love being around these people. And then you go on vacation with them, you're like, I can't wait to get away from these people. Okay? Natural trajectory is to lose affection. It can be hard sometimes when you've got a child or two children and they're screaming and it's crazy and you feel like all you're doing is changing diapers and dealing with stuff day in and day out. And after a while, it's like, I need a break, man. I, I, I'll die for my children, but right now I don't know if I want to be in the same room with them. Yeah, I'll jump in front of a train for them. Absolutely. In fact, that seems better right now, right? Right? That just seems right. Yeah, you know. But the screaming kid, I, right? That's true. Isn't it true? And so what he's saying is, older women, you need to step in at this moment because that affection has to be kindled. Little illustration on this, and then we'll move on. Uh, I was with uh, Frank and Marie Drown, the missionaries who we've been connecting with that, you know, were in Ecuador all those years ago. And, and, uh, and you know, I was walking with Marie, and they're in their 90s, Frank and Marie in their 90s, and, you know, veteran missionary couple. And Frank has Alzheimer's. And so I asked Marie, what's it like to have a husband with Alzheimer's? And she says, it's very hard. Very hard because he, all our memories are gone. All the inside jokes are gone. We have nothing. We have no point of contact every day is the same day. Every moment's the same moment. You live in the same moment, and you have no relationship. I have no relationship with my husband. He'll wake up every day, and he'll, he'll talk to me, but we have nothing. And I said, wow, how do you get through that? She goes, well, I'm going to tell you my philosophy of marriage. I'm like, all right. When a 92-year-old woman tells you their philosophy of marriage, and they got a good marriage, you listen, right? And here was her philosophy of life. She said, every season of life, I've had to choose to love my husband. Every season I've had to say, this is the season where I'm going to love him and I'm going to shower him with affection because I have to and I'm praying that God would give me love in this season. And she goes, this is just the next season. It's just the next one. I thought, see, that's, that's the idea. She didn't back away from the affection. She didn't back away from it, but she had to push herself towards that. Saying, older women, you've got to help these younger women do this. It's a big deal. Okay, we're not hitting them all this long, but that's just a big one because that word phileo, I wanted you to understand it and, and to let you know it is a big deal and, and why we need the older women to come and help. Okay, the next one, self-control. Again, right, not governed by impulse, but by wisdom. We'll leave that one because we'll tack it in a minute here. Pure. The word pure means physical and emotional modesty. Younger women, it's easy to want to define yourself by your beauty to let the world see things and let people go, wow, she's hot, right? That's what girls want sometimes. And, and the idea is having the older woman say, listen, don't show that off so much. You know what? You're flirting over here, and you shouldn't be a flirt. I know you're enjoying the attention. Stop it. Stop it. That's not purity. Purity isn't to put yourself out there so guys notice you, but it is a temptation. It is a temptation. And so we need the older women to help the younger women not fall into that temptation. Working at home, you know what that simply means? Keeping busy, not remaining active. It's not just saying that, you know, it's not that old kind of fundamentalism, you know, in the kitchen, barefoot and pregnant kind of a thing. But what it's just saying is, is that you've got a place here. Use it. Don't disengage it. You've got a place in your home. 
Find that place. Work with that place. You and your husband will work out where that place is. He's got a place. You've got a place. Work hard. Don't be lazy is what it's saying. The next one is kind. Kind is a big one because it means this, not given to frustration with their family, using sharp tones. Very easy when you're around your family, especially when you're a younger woman, to all of a sudden be like, stop it! You know, you're so frustrating right now. You know, that comes out. And he's saying, no, don't do that. The tongue is not to be a sword to be used against your family. Kindness should be there. Okay, but again, we need help. And then submissive to their own husbands. What does that mean, submissive to their own husbands? I'll give you maybe a way that that could look, right? Well, the simple definition, not submissive to another person or idea. Okay, so it wouldn't be this. A woman coming home saying, you know, Pastor Steve says that you should be this way in the home. Pastor Steve says that you should do this. Okay, I'm not your husband, right? That's not the way you should do it. Right, you shouldn't allow another idea or another man, or another thought, or another thing, or another book, or something, be the ruler there. And, 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 and again, asking everybody to kind of fall under that. You're married, you work it out with your husband. And together you work it out. Is that hard? Yes, that can be hard. That is why you need an older woman to help you. Instincts don't lead us there. Instincts lead us to fight. Instincts lead us to this kind of sharpness. Now notice what happens. If all this is taking place correctly, notice what happens. That the word of God will not be reviled. That the word of God will not be reviled. See, that's what this is about. They live in a pagan culture. They live in Crete where everybody is pagan. Everybody's living for their own self. We're coming in saying, we believe the Word of God has the, has the whole understanding of life and truth, and, and we want you to, to know this because we believe it can change you. But yet, if it's not changing us, and we're going down the exact same trajectory that the world's going down, then people will say, well, why would I follow that? Your life is no different from my life. He say, we don't want the Word of God reviled. What we want are homes that are healthy and strong. We want the scriptures proven to be true as people fall under them. So the older women discipling these younger women and all of a sudden the word of God is being upheld and people can no longer say that word of God is pointless, worthless. They have to say, hey, I don't know why you love your your children more than I do. What Can you tell me about it? And that younger woman can say, listen, I want to introduce you to somebody who's really helped me. I meet with this woman She's just really been a big impact in my life, and I'd love to have you come because we study the Bible together. This is the stuff that's challenging me and helping me. That's the idea. And now the Word of God is being validated. Okay, let's keep going now. We're back to the young men. Okay, we're, we're kind of through this, getting through the list here. The young men. Now he says, likewise, verse 6, urge the young men to be self-controlled. Now the reason why he says likewise is he's, he's kind of coming back to the fact that Titus is back teaching these young men. So Titus is influencing the older men, the older women. Older women are with the younger women. He's not. He's just helping the older women with the younger women. But now Titus is back with the younger men. And notice, they only have one thing on their list. Right? Everybody's got a whole grocery list of things. He's got one. Right? Self-controlled. Now, When we say self-control, we say amen. Because every single problem a young man has is rooted in this. Right? 
Right? You've heard the old saying, you know, ready, fire, aim. Young men are just ready, fire. Ready, fire, 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 fire. Right? I mean, that's just a young man. Right? You send a young man an email, a bad email, or, you know, send him a, you know, man, he's just right away writing an answer back. You're not even thinking. He read three lines of that first email, and he's just firing back. It's just young men. They're just they're given by their impulse, aren't they? Every, I mean, like I'm thinking about it like in my youth, and I think every dumb thing I did in life began with, man, it just, it seemed right at the time, <laughs> you know. But now that I thought about it, you know, like everything begins that way. The whole story, my whole youth can be defined that way. That just seemed like the right thing to do. And when you're discipling a young man, your discipleship always begins this way. Now, hang on a minute. Let's think about that, right? I mean, that's the whole key to discipling a young man. You get that one phrase, hang on a minute. Let's think about that. And you're like, why? Why? You don't know what? No, just think about it for a moment. You think that's right? Well, I don't know. No, let's think about it. Well, I don't think about it. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Got it. Self-control. That's the key right there. Now notice he says, urge the young man. Right? There's no urging in anywhere else. It urge just means like, like go after him, you know. Right? This is it. But then what's interesting is that you say, but still, aren't there other things that the young men need to be working on? Yes, but until they get self-control, they can't do anything else. Really, I really believe that. But then you get to verse 7, and now you get to Titus's description. And, and, and Titus's description, I believe, grammatically is connected to the young men. And the idea is that Titus now is to be an example of everything else. So as he's discipling the young guys, he's also seeking to be an example to them because they need to see it. The young men need to be in a situation where they're being coached and mentored. And so Titus, so he says, here's the, what I call the pastor-teacher, because I think this qualification is that qualification of that role. That's the role that Titus is playing, is this pastor-teacher role in the church. And notice what he says here. Now, now you, pastor-teacher... Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And I believe that is to be not just for the church at large, but also for the men, for the young men. And the whole idea is he's saying, now listen, what I want you to do, Titus, is is as you're walking around, I want you to show people the right way, the way you make decisions about how you you care for your car, how you do things in life, and every area of life that you show somebody who's handling things accurately so the young men will see it. And so the young man comes along and says, you know what I was thinking of doing? You know, I got my paycheck the other day, and, and so I'm just going to buy this thing, right? I'm going to buy a new truck. You know, I got this huge paycheck. I'm going to buy a new truck. And you stop and say, hold on a minute. Just, just wait. Slow down. Uh, have you thought about saving any of that money? Well, no, see, I got this truck, and I got this guy who's going to give me this other job, and then I'll save that money. Okay, hold on a minute. Maybe you should save some of this, and then when, if that guy comes through, he probably won't come through, but if he does come through, you can save some of that. Then you could buy the new truck with what's left. No, you see, I need, hold on a minute, right? Show yourself, help the guy process life. That's what that means. Help him slow down. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works, handling things accurately, correctly. 
But then he moves on. So that's the model of good works. Someone who shows a pattern of acting things nobly, right? You know, so, so everything from maintaining his car to the way he treats his family to the way he prays and, and thinks about God, he's, he's modeling this for him. Now, then, as he's moving on with the pastor-teacher role, he's saying, now listen, though, because your role is teaching, because you're going to be teaching the older men, you're going to be teaching the older women, and you're going to be helping the older women teach the younger women, and you're going to be teaching the younger men and also kind of having this role in the church, you need to make sure your teaching has certain traits to it. So let's click these off real quick here. That your teaching has integrity. It's not corrupted by any other agenda. That's all that integrity means. It's not corrupted by another agenda. That it has dignity. It means that you're treating the, the text with seriousness. Right? This is why we don't make fun of the Bible or do skits that make light of truth, things like that. This truth should be handled with seriousness. And sound of speech. It's the idea of teaching that, teaching that cannot be condemned. There's nothing worse than a teacher who hasn't thought through his lessons, so he's up there rambling for an hour. Right? We've all sat through sermons where you're like, my word, have you thought about this text at all? You know, it's like, where are you going? There's no rabbits at the end of this trail at all. It's not even a rabbit trail. We're like in Alice in Wonderland's black hole. I don't even know. How do we get out of this mess? Right? We've been in those situations. That's not sound of speech. That's preaching that can be condemned. Now, notice what happens. If Titus's teaching is this way, notice the impact then, right? It says, In sound of speech that cannot be condemned, so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. If our teaching isn't accurate and truthful, then when the opponents come and they say, The word of God isn't true, or you're not true, or you're a bad pastor, or this is a bad church... And people would say, well, yeah, I mean, this guy can't even preach his way out of a wet paper bag. I mean, there's just nothing there. The accusations stick. But if people stop and say, hold on a minute, this can't be true because we've learned so much of the Bible and it's been upheld in our life and it's transformed us and it's helped us get through things. Nah, you're wrong, opponents. And the opponents get pushed down. They're not believed. And so it's very important for the purity of the church that he's this way. Okay, now there's one more category. I'll just click them off quickly. It's bond servants. I want to explain to you this category. Don't think of slaves in the sense of like the slavery in the 1800s. Bond servants were actually a, a, a way people could earn a living in that culture. In, in that day, there was slaves. There was a, what, what's called indentured servitude. There were people who entered into that for debt reasons and loan reasons and other things like that. You borrow money from somebody and then you become their servant till you pay it off. And oftentimes, that was oftentimes how people became servants in those days. And when a servant was set free, some of them could say, boy, I really like this, this job. I actually enjoy being a servant to this guy. And so I'm going to enter in for life. I'll be a servant for life. That's called a bond servant. And what Titus is saying, he said, now listen, in your community, you're going to have people who are serving their, their masters as employers. This is their career choice. They've willingly chosen this job. That's why a lot of people use this bond servant and say, this is, you could draw a parallel to work life here. And I don't think that's an inappropriate parallel because these are people who are choosing to make servanthood their career choice. He's saying, now listen, they've got to be submissive to their own master, right? Which means that they have a, they're not out there comparing their master to someone else or being passive-aggressive towards their master. They've got to be well-pleasing. They've got to act in a manner that brings joy to their master, 
Not argumentative. That one's pretty obvious, right? Don't be an adversary. Not pilfering. That's taking things your master would never see. So if the master had a hundred rakes and the guy took one rake home, the master would never catch it. He's saying, don't do that. Showing all good faith. This means this person is trusting God, openly trusting God for everything. That's why they, they can be submissive and well-pleasing and not argumentative because they believe God's in control. Okay, I know I clicked those off quickly. You guys are trying to write them down, but, but there's, there's the point. But notice what happens. They do all this so that in everything they might show forth the doctrine of God. By living this way, they show forth the truth. And therefore, people would say, what got into that master or that bondservant? Why is he working this way? In our case, we might say, what got into that employee? How can he work that way? It's the truth of God that has changed his heart. Okay, now, briefly, let me just read 11 through 14, and then we're going to wrap it up because we're not going to touch it here. It's going to lightly just read it here and then make one observation, and then we'll be done. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. See, this is the impact on the world. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here's what he's saying. God's grace has come to save us and transform us. That's what this message of the Bible is proclaiming. God is a good God, and He's a gracious God, and He's made a way for you to be not only brought to His kingdom of heaven forever, but He's made a way for you to be transformed in this life today. That's the message we want to proclaim to people. You can be set free from the natural trajectory of life. And the good news is it's God's grace that has appeared. And here's the simple thing I want you to get as we wrap it up. The simple thing of this point I want you to get is this. That God does not say, clean up your life. Old men, be what that list says. Older women, be what that list says. You know, younger women, younger men, bond servants, you be with Tim Titus, you be this, and then you can stand in my presence and I'll accept you. That's not what the message is. The message is, through Christ, I've already accepted you. Now come, let me help you become that list. You're already approved. You're already accepted. You're already in. The grace of God has appeared, and now it's going to teach us to be this way. And when you are this way, this is how you actually are salt and light in the world. Because you will suddenly get off the natural trajectory of life and on to a supernatural trajectory where kindness and love and forgiveness will be your defining character traits. And the world cannot deny that cannot deny it. This is why verse 15, he says, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is so important. Okay, let's wrap it up. I know I've gone long here. Three, three points I want you to catch from this. The first point is this, character impacts the world. When our homes are in order, we uphold the truth. We uphold it. When your homes are in order, you make my job of, on Sunday morning so much easier 
because you become a living testimony of what I use my mouth to talk about. And together, we're salt and light in this community. It's a great thing. Second thing, grace is what fuels. God is not saying to you, God is not saying to you, clean it up. He's saying, I've already accepted you because of the death of Christ. So now let me help you. Let me help you become this. Don't look at that list and say, I could never do this. What's the point? I'm depressed about it. Look at this list and say, wow, I could never do this. You mean, God, you could turn me into that? God's saying, absolutely. And three, then, a transformed home is the manner through which God designed for the word to be upheld in our culture. This is how we are salt and light. So this is what drives our home groups, our men's study, our women's study, the doctrine study, the youth ministry. We're doing all of these things to help you become these things. So when you, when you get an opportunity to be part of this, don't just look at it as oh, another choice in my list. Do I do this? Do I do aerobics or a women's study? Or do I do this or do that? Stop and say, no. Teaching is the means through which this stuff is, is given. We open up the Word of God to be able to dispense it so that it could fuel you and change you. And we, we want to have opportunities in, in our home groups and all the studies to do this. So as we conclude then, let me just give you two things you can pray for. And then we'll be done here. Number one, that we would commit to this path of transformation. That's the first thing. That, that we would say, you know what? Okay, God's grace, I'm not anything on that list, man. That list, I'm the opposite. Okay. If that's true, and if you raise your hand and say, that's me, I'm not that list. I could never be that list. But if you're willing to say in your heart, if something inside of you is saying, but God, if you could turn me into that, I would love that. Then I would just say, pray, man, that God would com- put a co- desire for you. Say, I want to commit to this so that I could be this and show the gospel in the world. Second thing, then, that we could pray for is that God's word would be upheld in our homes. If this is God's plan, and we live in a culture that's afraid of the Bible, well, man, let's take that fear away by the way we live. Isn't that a great thought? Let's take that thing. We don't need to pass any laws now. We don't have to do any of this stuff. We can just stand boldly in God's grace and transform society. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your grace. Lord, we go through that list, and all it does is convict us. All that goes through our mind is everything, how we blow it. I thank you for your grace that has come to instruct us. Through the cross, you accept us. Because of your grace, you take the time to conform us into this. Lord, may we commit to this, and may our homes boldly proclaim it. God, we stand in grace, but Lord, we want to be salt and light. Let that be so of us. In Christ's name, amen.